Hello, folks. Thank you for joining Christ Church at Grove Farms Sermon Podcast. We hope you find these messages insightful and inspirational. If you would like more information about Christ Church at Grove Farm or would like to connect with one of our pastors, staff, or ministry leaders, I encourage you to visit our website, ccgf.org. May God bless your study of the Word. Grace and peace to you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jeremiah, and I lead the high school ministry here at Christ Church at Grove Farm. And I'm, I'm so happy to be here with you today to hear from God's Word and to celebrate and to learn from what He has to teach us today. It's going to be a unique service in that after the sermon, we're actually going to have another prayer time as a chance to respond to what God has to say to us in his word today. So be excited about that, that we get to bookend our time hearing from him by being in conversation with him. I want to start off today by reading a passage from Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 through 31. This comes just a few verses before the reading of scripture today. It says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. My wife's name is Kelsey, and Kelsey is very smart, except for maybe in husband choosing. But overall, she is one of the smartest people that I know, and she has a great love of solving puzzles. So one of the things that we do sometimes as a date night is something called an escape room. Now, if you're not familiar with an escape room, they take two to maybe eight people, and they put you in a room that's just completely covered with clues and riddles and puzzles to solve. And the whole goal is you have one hour to get out of this room. Now, when you put together my wife's love of puzzles with my far too excessive love of competition, it makes for two very highly motivated people who will do anything and everything within our power to get out of that room. And to prove that we're great at it, I even brought a picture of us having gotten out of an escape room. So you can see we made it out. We had minutes to spare. It was a a comfortable exit from that escape room. The reason I tell you about escape rooms is, one, to brag about my smart wife, but two, and I think more importantly, there's a very innate human desire to solve puzzles and to understand riddles and to compile and piece together information. And that is a good thing. That is a a good thing about our wiring to try and understand and make sense of the world around us, especially when the world can be so complicated. The thing that gets us into trouble, though, is that not everything is a puzzle to be solved. Not everything is a riddle to be understood. And one of the places this very natural and even good human desire to solve puzzles and understand riddles gets us into trouble is when we read what the Scripture says about the end times. And when we try to piece together all the different parts. And here's the reason it gets us in trouble. These are not narrative stories. This isn't like a story of like, I went to my pantry, we were out of bread, I went to the grocery store, I bought bread, I bought it home, and we used the bread. Where there's a clear sequence of events, there's a problem, it has a resolution, and then we move on. This is prophecy, and a specific kind of prophecy that's called apocalyptic literature. 
And we see it throughout Scripture. And what it is not is a story where everything is meant to be taken as one-to-one literal from the text. We see it in the second half of the book of Daniel. Yes, that book of Daniel. It takes a turn about halfway through from the lion's den to floating angels who are covered in eyes and prophecies about the end times. We see it in the book of Revelation. We see it in the teachings of Jesus. It's all throughout Scripture, the specific end times prophecies. And even in the passage today, we see an example of a teaching from Jesus about the end times. And as we study these passages, whether it's Revelation, Daniel, Ezekiel, any of these passages that speak about the Lord's return and the end of time, I want to encourage you with something. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't get so fixated on the things that we don't know or the difficulty in sometimes assembling these pieces that you miss what it is that is being taught in these passages. This is not a puzzle to be solved. This is a message to be responded to and to be responded to with incredible urgency. This message about the end of days has tremendous things to teach us in our life today. And so what is the big picture that we're meant to take away from verse 30 and 31 that we just read? If this isn't just a mystery to be solved or a riddle to be understood, what is it meant to be? Well, the message of verse 30 and 31 is incredibly clear. Jesus will return. He will. It may seem hard to wrap our minds around when we're caught up in the everyday bits of our life, when we're paying bills, when we're dealing with family, when we're going to school or to work, whatever it is that consumes a lot of our thoughts day to day, it can be easy to forget this incredibly important reality that Jesus so clearly tells us here and throughout Scripture that he will return. And everything, everything will be different because of it. Because his will return will display his full glory. It says here, it will be in the clouds. It will be written in the skies. There will not be any confusion. In fact, Jesus tells us in other places, like you'll hear rumors like, oh, Jesus came back in the desert. Oh, Jesus came back in this city. When he returns, we won't be saying, is that him? All we'll be saying is, whoa. Okay. There will not be a question because the full glory of God will be on display, possibly in the greatest display of his glory since creation. And his return, as it says in these verses, his real physical and spiritual return to earth will be a source of mourning for many. It says that the peoples of the earth will mourn. Why? Why would Jesus coming back be a source of mourning? Well, maybe it's those who realize that their earthly power has come to an end. At any level, people who put their pride in governmental power, power in their work situation, even power in their own family, and they mourn because they have lost their control. They have to cede power to the unmistakable, unmissable glory of God on display in the heavens. Maybe they will mourn because they put their hope in something else. Themselves, false gods, money, idols, whatever it happens to be, when Christ returns, people will mourn who realize they have put their faith and their hope and their whole self in the wrong place. And it will be a terrible day. 
for people who do not know Christ when he returns. And that's hard to hear, but that doesn't make it untrue. And the Bible causes us and calls us to wrestle with this difficult and critical reality from his word. Now, we can look at this passage and the verses we're going to read in a minute, and we can ask questions of timing and of the arrangement of the events, how it will all unfold. And don't get me wrong, I don't think those are necessarily worthless pursuits. Studying God's word for all its depth and detail and beauty is a good thing. But what is a problem is if we make an idol out of knowing and we make sure that people have to understand exactly as we do and we, we take comfort in the secret knowledge because it gives us a sense of control. If we're the ones who know what's going to happen, we can, we can manage that. We can control that. This truly uncontrollable thing. And what I want you to do is know that it's not bad to study those things. Pre-trib, post-trib, a-mill, pre-mill. If those words mean nothing, that's okay too. But don't miss the forest for the trees. Christ is coming back. Now, if I were simply up here giving my opinions about the end time, I would hope that the Lord would shut off the power to the church. We would all go home and wait for the Steelers game to start. Because my opinions are not terribly worthwhile. But what we do need is we need to know what Scripture says about these end times. Because any human opinion is just that, and it's not of any great value. So how do I know that we should be more concerned about the message than the mystery? How do I know that we're not supposed to solve the riddle and spend our time deciphering the puzzle of the end of days? Well, the reason I know that is because Jesus, in this passage, very patiently explains that exact thing. In verses 36 through 39, he says this, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. No one knows. If we were supposed to know the precise order of every event and every twist and turn along the way, the Lord would have told us. He would have told us clearly and plainly in the same way he lays out the commandments for how we're supposed to live. But, much like the parables that he told to the Pharisees, he wanted people to understand the message and not get bogged down in every single detail of how this would all unfold. And any prophet who says that he knows when Christ will return is a liar. Because either that prophet is correct or Jesus is. I know where I'm staking my claim on that front. And any teacher who says they have solved the exact scope and sequence of all the details of Matthew 24 and of Revelation and of Daniel and of all these other passages about the end times is putting themselves on very risky ground because this is not a story. It is a prophetic message for us to respond to. And if you've been around long enough, 
you know how much people love to predict an apocalypse. For instance, I survived Y2K. In fact, I did it pretty effortlessly. And uh, I also managed to make it through 2012 when the Mayan calendar ended. Didn't even phase me that December, right past the Mayans. Uh, Harold Camping called his shot in, in uh, I think it was May of 2011, that he knew exactly when it was going to happen. He was, he was so confident. And 2011 came and went without the return of Christ in glory. You know why? Because not the Mayans or computer experts or Harold Camping or anybody else. No one knows the day or the hour that Christ will return. So if we're not meant to know the day or the hour, we need to know what to do with this message. We don't know the timing, but we know the big events. And we know that those big events come with the warning. Christ really will return in glory. This is a promise of Scripture throughout the Bible. It's not one out-of-context, cherry-picked verse. This is the true hope of believers. And we know from this passage that believers will be called to their Savior. Now, what that will look like, again, there are different ways of understanding that, and that's okay. We don't have all of the information. But we know that in the end, all believers will be called to Christ and that a new kingdom and a new heaven and a new earth will be established. The, the point is the same whether or not the rapture happens here or there in this way or that way. We will all, as believers in Christ, be called to him in the best day of our life. In the day that hopefully we have hoped for since the day we came to know Christ, Christ will come in glory and we should be saying, thank God you're here. Finally, it's happening. The thing that I so confidently put my faith and hope in, now we are seeing a display written across the skies. Hallelujah. That will be the moment when believers' hopes and joys will be fulfilled. And again, believe me, we will not miss it because it will be spectacular. But it will also be a day of mourning for others. It will be a day of terror for some as they realize they have missed out on what God has been telling his people since the beginning of creation. Because of that, we have some things to do until he comes. If we don't solve this passage, we respond to it. What does that look like in our lives? Well, verse 44 tells us clearly what Jesus wants us to do in response to this. He said, so you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. We will need to be ready. And I put forth to you that if you are hearing this message in person, streaming online, or later on on YouTube and a different day entirely, the Lord has brought you to this moment to know how to be ready, to know how to make yourself ready so that Christ's coming will be a moment of joy and not of mourning. Romans is a book of the Bible right after Acts, and it in long form lays out how it is that we can be saved. And in the third chapter of Romans, it says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I, unsurprisingly, have sinned many times. Pastor Craig has sinned. You have sinned. Every single living person has a sin nature and has also committed sins and fallen short of God's glory. And God is perfect. 
And his perfection cannot overlook and ignore sin. He would not be a just judge if he simply let all transgressions go unpunished. And the consequence, what we earn from that sin is told to us in Romans chapter 6. It says the wages of sin is death. But the good news is in Romans chapter 5, it tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We did not do anything to earn God's love. We did not inspire Jesus that he was so in awe of us that he came and died. We were still in exactly the same place we had always been, dead in our sins and waiting the consequences of that death. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans chapter 8 tells us, there is therefore, because Jesus died for us, he died and he rose again, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the promise of Scripture. That is how we are ready. We put our hope and our faith and our confidence in Jesus Christ, that he has died, he has rose, risen again, and that he has made a way for us to be brought back to God. He died taking our penalty. We get his righteousness so we can stand before God with the righteousness of Christ covering our sins and be brought back to him facing no condemnation. That's what it means to be ready. Romans 10, 9 says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is the first step in making yourself ready. That is how you do it. But if you already know that, if you've already proclaimed Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you should take your spiritual life seriously. You should be working on what's called your sanctification, which is the process of becoming more like Jesus. Not to save yourself. Hear me. Not to earn God's love or favor or grace, but to make the best possible use of the time that you have on earth. To do the most with however many years God has given you. There's a phrase in Hebrews 12, chapter 1, that I love because it's so accurate and descriptive. It says, tells us to watch out for the sin that so easily entangles us. Because that's what it does. Sin creeps in and it grabs at us and it trips us up and it makes us fall and it leads us away from God. The sin that so easily entangles us. And so what we must do is continually work out our salvation. We must continually tramp down by the grace of God and the power of his spirit that sin that easily entangles us so that we will be ready to celebrate when Christ comes, so that we will make the best use of every minute and every hour between now and then. Our time is limited. It comes with no guarantees. And sin holds us back from the best things that God has for each and every one of us. Now, I want to give you a few takeaways here for how we live in light of Christ's coming. The first way to live in light of Christ's coming is to hold on to hope because our hope is not on the things of this earth. Our hope is in the power and the salvation and the eternal life that comes through Jesus. And this is the hope that we have. This is what we wait for excitedly. This is what's on the other side of Jesus' glorious arrival. Revelation 21, 3 through 4, and then 23 through 27 says, And I heard in a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. and He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is our inheritance. That is our hope. What more could I add as a preacher to the beauty of what awaits us when Christ returns in glory? And if your hope isn't anything else, elevate it. Lift it up to that unfailing hope of the results of what Christ did for us while we were yet sinners. Christ is coming. Who are we taking with us? Verse 40 and 41 have a really provocative challenge in it. It says, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. This verse paints a very dramatic picture. Two people who are going about a perfectly normal day. One person is taken. The other person remains behind. Don't get caught up in the details. We don't know exactly how it's going to work out. Don't get bogged down in the mechanics of this moment. See the reality of it. Put this in a modern context. Two people are sitting in a break room at work having a normal conversation over lunch. One is gone. The other one stays. Two sisters are sitting and talking at a kitchen island, catching up about their busy lives. One is gone. The other one stays. That is the warning that we are given in this passage. Who are you comfortable leaving when Christ calls you home, however he does that. Because our desire as believers should be to rewrite that story. It should be two people are standing in a kitchen and both go. Because one of them was you and you told the other one about the hope that you have in Jesus. Two people are in the break room at work and they go to be with their Savior. Our deepest desire should be that we are not the ones who leave someone else standing when the Lord calls us home. Our desire should be to have a train of people coming in behind us who we told about the hope that we have in Christ. This is the best news ever possible for those who trust in Christ and a day of terror for those who do not. Sharing the gospel is not about padding church attendance. Sharing the gospel is not about giving good life advice about how to be a good person or smart with your money or any other thing. Sharing the gospel is a message of life and death, and we have no idea how long we have to share it. Whether Christ returns or he calls us home, we don't know how long we have to share that message, but it is a message of life and death. 
The message of Jesus in Matthew 24 is not a puzzle to be solved. He's not trying to give us cool riddles to work on. This is a dire and strongly worded warning about how we are to live our lives as believers and why sharing our faith is absolutely essential. This does not mean that you have to launch a nationwide evangelistic campaign. Now, mind you, maybe he's calling you to that. Maybe that's what the Lord has and you're trying to put that off because you're afraid to make that jump. But it doesn't mean that's for you. It doesn't mean that you have to stand in a street corner with a sign holding Bible verses and preach to people as they go about their day. But if that's the step of faith the Lord's calling you to take, then again, you can't put off what he's given you to do. But there are people in your life who you know that you are the best person to reach. God sent a missionary, someone who knows him, who knows about the hope that comes through Christ alone, and he sent them to this person. He sent you to somebody. Who is that one person that you know that you can tell so that when Christ comes, when he calls his people to himself, it's two people go and none are left. Start with just one. Pray for them. Pray for those people. And look for spiritual conversations and initiate spiritual conversations and tell them about the hope that you have in Jesus. Tell them why you go to church on Sunday. If you're here, you go to church at least once. Congratulations. Well done. Tell them why. Tell them about the hope that you have in Jesus and pray, pray, pray. And be ready when the opportunity arises. One of the things I love most about student ministry is how unexpectedly sometimes openings occur for profound spiritual conversations. But I think that's true in all of our lives. Be ready for the moment where you have a chance to share about the hope that you have in Christ. And pray, pray, pray. Whether Christ comes in glory or we die and we go and we stand before him, our time, not one minute of our time is guaranteed. We don't know how long we are on mission. But while we are here, our marching orders are incredibly clear. We need to tend to our spiritual house. We need to leave no one behind as far as we are able and we are to await this day with hopeful anticipation as the day when our Savior returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us your promises, that Christ will return in glory, that our hope and promise will be fulfilled, and that we have things to do until that day comes. Father God, I ask that you would help us to be faithful witnesses to any and everyone that we have a chance to share with, so with that when that day comes, two people go and none are left. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen.